I've just spoken to the most lovely guy, Josh Patterson, athlete, influencer and mental health campaigner. And yes, it is JP from Maiden Chelsea. But actually, I spent the majority of this podcast talking about his next adventure. It's obvious that Josh is a kindred spirit. Throughout this interview, I just felt the passion coming through the tears in his eyes as he tried to express how much it matters to him to help people struggling with mental health through sports, not only by setting himself absolutely crazy challenges, but also through creating his new business, Run Buddy, bringing people together to help everybody understand that we can achieve the impossible. Such a nice guy, such a bright future. And I really hope that this drives you and helps you go after whatever it is that you're dreaming up at the moment and even put those trainers on and go for a run. Enjoy. Bow your head and let your eyelids close on down Where we're going you won't need to bring your frown I'm Holly Tucker and welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. Back in 2006, I founded Not on the High Street for my kitchen table and since then I've gone on to launch Holly & Co. I'm the UK ambassador of Creative Small Businesses and I believe that having a business doing what you love is the key to a happy, fulfilled life. My dream is to help everybody start theirs. I'm here to offer advice, inspiration, wisdom and encouragement. And in my view, the best way to do this is by sharing stories. So I've reached out to my favourite small businesses, entrepreneurs and those who simply inspire me and ask them to share theirs. With thanks to Dell Technologies, who've helped bring this free podcast to life. Here are my conversations of inspiration. Hi, Josh. Welcome to Conversations of Inspiration. How are you today? I'm good. I'm very excited to chat to you today. I'm looking forward to talking to you today because in the end, what we're going to talk about is what you're building today. But like everybody on this podcast, I want to go back to the beginning, if that's okay, because people might know you from Maiden Chelsea, Mm -hmm. but I would love to start with Little Josh, if that's okay, because researching you for this podcast, I read that you were quite an anxious child. Um, Your parents separated when you were 13. Can you take me back to that point in time? Yeah, I think like any young child, we're all faced with certain adversities. And I think they very much shaped the person that I've become today, uh, both good and bad. And I would say I'm probably at a point now where I'm probably starting to react or become more aware of it than I ever have before. It's, you know, I've almost boxed it away. Yeah. I don't know why, but the last couple of years, it's really started to come out and I'm really starting to sort of like face it head on and reflect on it and try work through it. It was a tricky time for me. You know, I I had an amazing childhood and I was extremely blessed with the parents that I had. But unfortunately, I just had a mother and father who, you know, both were being faced with different things and communication wasn't necessarily key. And so actually what I would say is through all of the negatives uh, that I was faced have promoted all of the positives to this day, all the things that they were unable to do. I think I've made a real point of trying to successfully do 
in order to prevent that from ever happening again. It's about breaking the cycle, really. And I think a lot of people listening um, who too have come from a uh, a home where the parents have divorced will understand exactly what you're talking about. I've read that you felt rejected. Myself, I haven't experienced it, but I know friends that have, where you can have close family friends, where you can have a sort of a second family through all the friends and contacts of your parents. And then at a young age, when that's stripped away from you, it's very, very hard to process, you know, that all that padding that we give children through our friends of friends or etc. It's a very difficult thing because I know you were roughly about 10 or 11 when this all started. Younger, to be honest with you. I remember a, a quite a, a poignant moment when my mother and father told my sister and I in a caravan that we had at the time at the coast that they were going to divorce. It was really traumatic for me in particular, and I'm sure for my little sister too. I think she probably would have been too young though to remember that. And they didn't. And um, I think the problem was is that there these quite major moments uh, would occur and then it was almost just brushed over. Mm. You know, we wouldn't really talk about it. For your parents to announce that they're going to divorce and they're not, and then nothing more to be said about it, you're just sort of living each day as if it's going to be the last that they're together. Is it happening? Is it not happening? Yeah. You know, and ultimately they were both just trying to do the best possible thing that they could, but it is what it is, you know, it, it, it happens. And, mm. you know, I feel for the both of them because they've both been through things in their own personal lives. And obviously this was a knock-on effect of that. Very hard for a kid to understand that. It is. You know, as a parent now, I've I've come to realize, you know, I look at my little girl and she is the most innocent, beautiful, creative, passionate, loving little thing. And all children are like that. That's not just India. That's all children. And it's so sad to see how this world corrupts these little children into turning into certain individuals. I know some people could say certain things and maybe genetic or hereditary, yep. but it has. It is, it's society that breaks them and we need to try and prevent that. And ultimately, it's whatever insecurities or flaws that parent or individual have, it then seeps into that child or children. And that's something that we need to stop. And unfortunately, it's not happening right now, but I do feel like the more of these conversations we have and the more platforms that we can create for parents or individuals to come together and have these calm, supportive discussions... I think the more positive the world can become and a better environment it can have for children. I'd love to talk about the impact then that that had. This is almost like a golden thread for you in what you're creating today around mental health, is that it had an enormous impact on you in your time at school, that you might have felt very misunderstood and it was potentially an incredibly unhappy period of your life. Yeah, school, school was a tricky one for me. Um, this is when you then pass it on to, to teachers, you know, in, in school environments or any environment for that matter. It's about reading the signs, you know, and I was just a very lost, troubled child. And, uh, you know, I would often act out and became very disruptive in classes, which I look back on now. And, you know, if I could see those teachers, I'd just give them a hug and say, I'm sorry, you know. Mm. But at the same time, I was a young child. I wasn't a bad kid. And I think that's the problem is, is that misunderstanding. There's a good child and there's a bad child. There's maybe just a confused child that's going through an awful lot. And if they don't have that support network in place um, or an understanding of what it is that they are going through themselves or why they're acting like this, Again, the cycle's never going to change. And I think just through uh, my personal experience, I was going through so much at home. And obviously my behavior was just an expression of that. 
I didn't know that at the time. I now can look back on it and kind of dissect it and understand it a little bit better. Yeah. And I think it's become a real asset of mine now. Who knows how India will grow up or how individuals around me may grow up. But I feel like because I have a better understanding, there's no one more fitting now to support her through that process if she was ever to go through it herself. Do you think, because, you know, you're 33 now. 30, so 32, almost 33. 32, oh, almost 33. <laughs> yeah, do I look 30? Do I look... What does a 33-year-old yeah, look, look like? Do you look 33? <laughs> Listen, when you're my age, yeah. <laughs> it's a blessing to be 32. When you look back, because it's actually not that long ago, when I've read about this experience for you, it's like the teachers weren't asking you the right questions. You were suspended. Sometimes you were put in into a room to look at the playground for a week at a time. Yeah. Actually, your world at home was falling apart. That support network that we spoke about, our parents, friends, and they become almost like second mothers and fathers. And But as you said, this is the absolute beautiful role of a teacher is they've got to ask those right questions. 100%. 100%. And do you know what? There's two teachers, um, Mr. Clifford and Mr. Evely, that stand out for me. Um, one was headmaster, Mr. Clifford, and Mr. Evely was my English teacher. I'll always remember them. I wasn't predicted to get a single GCSE. That's really how bad it was, and also my learning difficulties too. And there were multiple times Mr. Clifford probably could have expelled me and chose not to. And he had many, many chats with my dad, and he really invested me in as, as a person. And I ended up getting three GCSEs. Now, a lot of people might laugh at that, but that to me was a complete success. And Mr. Evely, I got a C in English. And I always will feel grateful for him because that for me was just remarkable. I never in my wildest dreams would have thought that would have been possible. And I remember when I got my results back and I opened them up and, and said in front of Mr. Clifford, you know, I've got three GCSEs. He started to cry. Like it, it was such a success for him that he'd managed to accomplish this and, and we could do this together as a team. I spoke to him briefly, actually, a, a couple of years ago. We reconnected, but I would love to see the both of them again, just to really show them my gratitude. But that doesn't that just show you all these years later from a 13, well, at the time I would have been, what, 15, 16 years old, I'm now 32, that I still have those fond memories of them. So to anybody that's listening that is in that position, don't ever underestimate the impact you can have in a person or a child's life, because it is, it's forever lasting. A few people who have appeared on this podcast have mentioned a couple of teachers and over the time and, you know, they're double your age and still they're talking about Mr. or Mrs. who had this impact. And I think even if you're not a teacher, I'd like to think that actually we all can have a sort of flock of children that we care about, that we can really influence. When you were at school having this difficult time, sport was a great passion of yours, almost like potentially a comfort blanket, something, you know, that you knew that you were good at. But that also became a bit of a battleground for you before a doctor diagnosed you with anxiety. Tell me about that. Was sport always something that you cared about? I think sport and drama. Drama was something that I was quite effortless in. When it came to my ASNA levels, like I failed all of my exams. But when it came to the practical, the actual theatrical side, I got 100% in all four modules. Wow! I was one of a few in the country, I think, to successfully achieve that. It's just because I guess my personality and I just love to express myself and, and, and performing has always been a passion. And there's a part of me that maybe thinks that that's a regret that I didn't pursue that. But at the time, it just wasn't. Sport seemed to take the focus. And 
it's always been a, a place for me, no matter what I do in that sporting environment, where it's, it's one of the few places I have of peace, you know, even in certain environments where to most people it could be extreme. I just find solace in that. It was a bit of a love-hate relationship, I think, as I got older. What became my peaceful place started to become quite stressful, not because of myself necessarily, but maybe the environment or certain individuals and the impact that they were having on me. In terms of when you decided to reach out to, was it a doctor to talk about anxiety? And was this done? You know, was this a done thing that actually... I doubt you and your mates spoke about having anxiety. No, I mean, back in the day, I mean, when I was, what, 17, 18, this, this would, it didn't exist, to be honest with you. I was struggling so badly. I was losing my mind. I didn't have a diagnosis and I didn't understand it. And I, I felt so different to other children at the time. And I just needed to do something about it. So, you know, for me, it was quite a brave thing to go and speak to, to the local doctor. I explained to him what my symptoms were and he passed me this leaflet essentially which was you know I guess the symptoms of of anxiety disorder and I ticked every single one of them off I just felt really dirty quite frankly when he told me that I was like god I've got anxiety didn't really understand it or or what it was Mm. and that was it there was no right we're going to set up some support for you now or let's have a discussion about it or is there anybody we can reach out to I literally got given the piece of paper I got told I had it I walked away and I remember I was sat at this tree and this girl Olive came over to me she's like you okay and I said oh just been diagnosed with anxiety and I remember her saying what's that and I was like I don't really know Mm. and that was it I kind of just, I put that away for the next number of years and I had anxiety, but I didn't know how to sort of like overcome it or improve it. It was just, I had it. And I mean, that's quite a shock, isn't it, really? And and again, thank goodness things are moving forward. You know, we think about our little ones, we think about even us parents being able to talk about it. And I know that, you know, what you almost then sort of hit a rock, what you call a rock bottom, you know, a darkest period of your life where... You had aggression, you were trying to cope with all these things. What happened? Why was it rock bottom? Uh, Because I I didn't know what I was going through. The world around me was crumbling. My mindset was increasingly getting worse. And all I had to go off was years ago, somebody telling me I had anxiety. I couldn't speak openly about it because nobody else was. Nobody else had it. It didn't exist. Mm. I I didn't feel ashamed. I felt misunderstood. I didn't really know who I was or what was going on. When you are unaware of what it is that you're going through and you are not able to understand or try and improve it or work with it or work alongside people that can help you get through it, it's like an eruption, you know, it's only going to build up, Mm. you know, until it explodes. And that's what happens. You know, things in my life and my personal life were not working. You know, although my parents were divorced, the divorce was never ending. And I think the emotional trauma just got too much for me, quite frankly, and then started obviously to impact the wider point of my life. And then it just, I just exploded. And you sent a text to your friend, is that right? Yeah, I sent sent a text to my friend, which I've never shared with anyone. Um, And that was it. You know, I I, I just was in a bad place. And, you know, when I was at my dad's, it, it got to the point where I was like, that's it. It's game over now. I'm done. I'm I'm sick of this world. I'm sick of everything around me. You know, all it seemed like all I'd ever experienced was just negativity and and drama. And I just didn't want to face that anymore. I just wanted to wake up and just smile and be happy. To anyone that's listening, though, I you know I want to make it very clear. I got two parents that 
have worked so hard to give me the most amazing life. And I have been very, very lucky with the life that I have. And I have a wonderful, wonderful family. I don't want it to seem overdramatic. It's just one of those things as a child where whatever as an adult you're going through, you just have to be mindful of what trauma that does create to the child. Because however it feels for you, it is honestly 10, 20 times worse for them because they feel your pain. But because they're so young... And they want to help you, but they don't know how to. And that becomes really frustrating. And so they put their emotions and how they feel aside because they're so focused on you. And that's at the detriment of them. And it was the detriment of me. But fortunately, we are here today. Yeah. You know, I'm still faced with those same traumas, but I worked through them. I was ashamed to admit it. I'm proud now that I'm open. And it's important, Josh, you know, it's important that we have these conversations. You know, I think as we get older, some of the things that have happened, like you're saying over the last two years, you know, the boxes that you put under the stairs that were shut are starting to open up. Now, I'm not a psychologist, but maybe that's a really good thing. Maybe that you're getting into a really great place in your life that you're able to. We're born to parents, aren't we? We don't ask to be born into certain lives. It just happens and things happen. And I think it's such an important conversation that we have, especially for men to be having these conversations. Men struggle to talk about their mental health. There's crazy statistics, aren't there, around men's mental health. And so I think it's very, very important that we break stigmas and that actually things that affect us as children. I have a number of men in my life where absolutely today in their 60s and 70s, they are basically built and wired and react because of the trauma that they suffered as children. And that is what we are. Is that one of your goals now in terms of dealing with mental health? Do you feel like this is something that will be with you forevermore? Is this a passion now of yours? Yeah, 100%. The more I learn about myself, the more passionate I become. And I would say to anybody that goes through something similar, one of the greatest assets you will inherit, I would hope, is empathy. I tell you what, when you've got that, my God, that will drive you or push you on to do the most remarkable things, not just for yourself, but for other people too. And actually, it's not something that everybody has. And that is what is wrong with the world. That's why we find ourselves in these tricky situations, because that person does not have it. They have the ability to have it, but maybe choose not to sometimes. I wake up most days, even now, and I still don't know. You know, I still, I have this imposter syndrome where I'm like, what, what, who am I? You know, what, what is my purpose in the world? I look at that friend and they're so talented. They play the piano, the violin. I look at that friend and they're an unbelievable developer, anything to do with IT or that person's a professional athlete or they're a superb actor or they're a successful business owner. And I still wake up and I'm like, I'm not good. I can't do a spreadsheet. You know, I'm dyslexic. I'm terrible with spelling. Mm. I get things wrong more often than not. But actually, what I've come to realize is through my own adversities, my purpose in life is to support other people, you know, and enable them to come through whatever adversity it is that they are facing. And so I'm using multiple different forms to try and communicate that message to individuals. Because actually over time, I probably am not the stereotype that most people would maybe have for somebody who has struggled or is struggling mentally, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of my background. I would like to think that we're breaking or I am trying to break those stereotypes down to communicate, sorry, that message more to people. Because like you said, based on the statistics, I think currently 84 men are taking their life a week. 
this narrative of be tough, be strong, it's clearly not working because those numbers are increasing and will continue to increase until we have these conversations. But I think it's the way you articulate yourself, the things that you achieve. I guess the way you communicate it to other people is so valuable because actually what will work with you, Holly, isn't necessarily going to work with somebody else. Yeah. And that's where empathy comes in. Yeah. And you have to understand that person's journey. Some people like to be shouted at, some don't. Some people, when you talk to them, like you by their side, some like you at the front. You have to understand what makes them work. Absolutely. And I've just learned that through my life. And so I'm trying as many different methods as possible to communicate that message and say, it's okay. I'm going to take a moment before we come back to this conversation, because I want to just talk about the little sandwich filling. If, we, if we've done the first piece of bread, we're going to do sandwich filling and then we're going to come to the other side of the bread. God knows why I'm talking about sandwiches with a complete athlete here. <laughs> I love the fact that you think that a person who exercises wouldn't eat a sandwich. You wouldn't believe the stuff that I have to eat when I do these challenges. Yeah, that's because you've burnt 40,000 calories, right? <laughs> okay, yeah. so we touched earlier on sport being an absolute passion of your life. You spent four years at playing professional rugby when you left school well attempting to yeah come on the fact that i've read that you played professional rugby means that at least it was you know it was something here was that a positive point did you think you were going to become that was going to be your life a sports person i truly believe with the right coach i could have played for a premiership team but i didn't and i think it was four years learning how valuable it is for me to be nurtured by someone because I quite quickly can crumble. And unfortunately, that was just the case whenever I had the opportunity or, you know, a game, you know, of great importance, you know, that was my moment to shine. And I didn't. It's because my confidence was just knocked. And, you know, I think there were so many times where when I needed that coach to stand by my side and put the arm around me, he didn't. And unfortunately, those four years, they were some of the best years of my life. They really were. And they, again, they really helped shape me on this journey that I'm on. Mm -hmm. But there are times of frustration, you know, because actually I think with the right person, where could I be now? And I know a lot of people go, you know, you can't depend on others to get to where you want to. I disagree with that. I do feel the environment you have around you can support you on any goal that you may have. I do feel that you can take yourself anywhere, but sometimes having that added help, that's the game changer. I completely agree. I think that we... You know, we call them guardian angels and these are people that surround you and can either pick away at your confidence and create your imposter syndrome or they can build you up and make you the grandest version of yourself. And it's about picking those people, isn't it? And, and actually becoming more aware of how you operate, as you said, and I love your self-awareness that you need people to give you that boost, that confidence, that cuddle, that is what then gets you to that next point. Whereas, as you said, some other people need tough love. And it's it's that difference that makes us all uniquely human. Um, tell me, we, we then go on to a, another stage where after this moment in rugby, you took a role on the reality show Made in Chelsea. So quickly becoming a fan favourite. What was that experience like? And I'm wondering... Because you were quite young when you went on it. Mm. How did you cope with your anxiety? And did you struggle with the experience? So when I first started on it, it was 
it was incredible. You know, the travel element, people I got to meet, the opportunities that I was given. You know, what I would say to anyone, just firstly, anyone that is ever given this opportunity, make sure the people you have around you are the right ones because they'll make you or they'll take and they'll break you, quite frankly. Also have a goal in your mind. You have to have an ambition. Don't go onto that show because you want to be famous or make money. If you do that, I promise you, your life will end in tatters. I've seen it. It doesn't change. Mm. But if you have a goal, you have to utilize that opportunity to elevate you to get to that point. That would, I would say, is one of the things from that show that I will take as it has enabled me this platform to connect with people and get to where I really wanted to be. In terms of the anxieties, what I've learned about society is how fickle, I can't talk about the rest of the world, but how fickle the UK is. We are so quick to love, support and cherish an individual, but we are so quick to absolutely rip and villainize that person apart. And that's something that I really don't like about us to be honest. Do you think you realised that when you went on to that show? Oh. So, but in terms of, did you know what you were letting yourself in for? No, I had no idea. I mean, I, I, I literally went from being this Norfolk yokel to going on this TV show and <laughs> the fame was ridiculous. You know, at the time, there wasn't multiple reality shows. There were kind of like the three staple ones. And I don't think there was necessarily a support in place to kind of prepare you for that because you go from nothing to everything. Mm -hmm. It was mental. But what I would say is I was very lucky. My family are very humble, you know, and my friends are humble too, no matter what their success is. And I had the, the greatest asset of all, which was to go back to my mum's and my dad's in villages of people that care for you, for you and not because of status or money. And so I was always brought down and I had that retreat to get away from it all. Some don't have that opportunity. My anxieties really came in. I think the problem with shows like that is ultimately a production company or a producer can choose whether you'll look good in that scene or whether you don't. Yeah. And the biggest frustration is when somebody in the general public has this perception of you and it's not the truth, quite frankly. And I, I have mm. to be very careful what I say for, for legal reasons yeah. because I'm sure <laughs> they can get me for saying something that I probably shouldn't. But you can be cast as something that you're not. Well, That's it, what you're saying, yes. You can be cast as something you're not. I fortunately wasn't. I went on there for the the buffoon that I am and I think for once the you know the pub the general public were like it's so nice that a guy's come on a show like this and he's not trying to be the next Spencer Matthews and make out he's this complete womanizer he speaks elvish he's an idiot you know he doesn't know geography or anything for that matter and it's a little bit refreshing actually he just seems like a normal guy which I which I am and I was on the show rather than trying to portray myself as something I wasn't you know, I got put into this relationship and it was huge. You know, just the attention on us as a couple was massive. Now, what was hard for me, I'd never, ever been in a relationship before in my life. This is my first ever girlfriend, proper girlfriend relationship. And I'm learning how to be in a relationship on a national TV show with the nation's eyes on me. Mm. And I have a TV show and some other things where if I make a mistake, I'm not having a conversation with you, Holly, like this, where it's calm mm. and collected mm. and I can express myself and you go, well, you maybe could have done it this way. Mm. I get absolutely ripped apart for making the most innocent mistake, mm. not understanding a situation. And that's not the way to teach someone. And then you then have the nation jumping on your back, making these presumptions about you, you're this and you're that. 
And all you really needed was just one person to just go, well, you know, have you thought about it this way? So what wasn't a big deal was made into a huge deal, which then in turn became very traumatic. When you actually look back at my past, my only perception of love is what I saw with my mother and my father, which we know didn't end particularly well. Mm. I'm going into a relationship so vulnerable. Yeah. It's such a sensitive situation and it's being portrayed on national TV. Of course, it was my choice. I, I joined the show, guys. So let's, that was my decision. But like I said, I think people were so quick to villainize when things were done and said. And really, it, it just wasn't the right thing to do. But, you know, it's ratings, right, for people? It, it, well, <laughs> but also, it is just a crazy thing we're talking about, you know, because... When we actually really think about it, we've got a young guy going through his first relationship on national TV and we're acting as if that's even a normal yeah. situation, yeah. you know. And so you're in the most extraordinary situation. Yeah. It's sort of not been done before. I think you were the first, you know, it was all the firsts, wasn't it? It was that sort of era. Yeah. And it was entertainment. That's what it was there for. And, you know, you're probably your love of drama and everything came out there. And, you know, that this is sort of, it was all wrapped up into lots of different things that you probably couldn't quite calculate at the time. But you left after three years. I know, to concentrate on becoming a father after your beautiful daughter, India, was born. Yeah. And there was this immediate shift for you, a feeling of a higher purpose now that you were a father. Did that give you comfort that you knew that time on Made in Chelsea needed to be over? Well, I mean, you know, touching on your previous point to come on to this next one, you know, there were times where... I mean, I took such a beating on there and it's known. It's really known towards the end, the, the, the final stages by anyone. You know, there's a joke about it, quite frankly, the what I took. And it got to the point where I would be in the street, say if I was on a night out with friends, and I would have people come up to me and just crack me in the face. Just hit me in the face because they were so angered by what was being shown on screen. Mm. And yet they didn't know the truth. And you have to take that. I never reacted. And I thought to myself, wow, if this is what they're like about a relationship, what on earth are they going to be like as me as a father? Now, bear in mind, this is my first ever relationship, my first ever love. I'm now going to become a father. And it was unexpected. Her mother and I were not together. So the news was a big surprise. Mm. So I was being thrown into a situation that I didn't have the answers for. I was still trying to figure out how to be in a relationship, let alone now becoming a father at 27. And I thought, well, if I'm going to get hit in the face for not understanding a relationship, what on earth are the public going to do to me becoming a father? And I just, for myself, I couldn't face that. But also, it wasn't about me anymore. Mm. It was about my little girl. When I found out I was going to be a dad, she became priority. My career, everything, that was put aside. I wanted to make sure that this little thing was in the healthiest and the happiest environment she could possibly be. But also for her mother and I to be in an environment and a healthier space, to be able to focus on being in a relationship and being parents to this beautiful little girl, to right all the wrongs and to try break any negative cycles that we've been through ourselves, to just try and ensure that this little thing has got the happiest possible life and uh, it's a decision I stick by. You know, there are times where I definitely miss certain cast members and experiences. I wouldn't change it for the world because what I've, I've inherited with my little girl is greater than anything I've ever had. I'm so happy you're happy. I was wondering, perhaps, although you moved on, how easy was it 
you know, the shift of public perception. Because I think, you know, I was talking to Ben Fogel about this and he was on the first reality TV show, Castaway. Yeah. And he was cast as the privileged, posh guy who was put on an island and, you know, and he came back and that was basically who he was. He was just branded. Have you found that yourself? And isn't it interesting how, and we all do it, whether we want to admit it or not, you know, we judge people. It's interesting if we actually check ourselves, do we give people other chances to progress? Do we give people other chances to move on? So going to the beginning of my question, how has it been? Have you seen the shift or are you still working on that? Um, it's going to be tougher because culture changes. To be seen as a white privileged male in this industry right now, it's a hard gig. It really is. Mm -hmm. So you have that against you, to be quite blunt and honest. And that's, that's fine. Yeah. Because, you know, with any adversity I've faced in my life, it has, I keep saying this, it keeps shaping the person I've become. The tougher I become, not closed off, the tougher, the more passionate, the more ambitious I become. So if I see a door closed on me, I'm going to find every solution I can to open it. And I know a lot of people listen to this and they go, oh, it's just nonsense. It's just airy-fairy. I mean it. You've got to find a solution because what's your choice? You just stop. Mm. And, I, and I don't mm. want to do that. For me, I always said when I came from Norfolk and I joined the show, it's an adventure. It's a crazy journey. And when my time comes to an end, I'll accept it. And I'm grateful for every experience. But it's got to the point now where I don't want this journey to end because actually it's developed. Yeah. Like I said, there are more things to come and there are more ambitions that are bigger and they're greater. And I'm starting to believe in myself and the potential that I have and what I can accomplish and how many more people I can affect. And platform enables that. And you've got to be really honest. Mm. The bigger the platform you have, the more people you can help with it because more people are interested in listening to what you have to say or they respect more of what you have to say. Mm -hmm. You know, the more networks you can connect with, therefore you can connect with a larger demographic of people, not just within the UK, but on a global scale as well. You know, for me, I'm not just focused on the 84 men that take their life a week here within the UK. We need to work it out for the entire planet, quite frankly. We're working with our partners at Dell Technologies to empower small businesses across the UK with the tools and knowledge they need to thrive. Every week, we bring you the Small Business Pharmacy Live to help you navigate your business journey, covering a huge range of topics. Here I am giving my personal advice about how to retain engaged and loyal customers by keeping them at both the centre of your team and business. You should be talking about your customer every single day without fail okay so put them right at the forefront it is important that everyone remembers so if you have a team you need to put the customer right at the forefront of your team you need to remember that all feedback needs to be shared and basically unless everyone is part of your brand culture and i'm talking about anyone that touches your customer in your team they must know your brand they must know your values they have to literally amplify radiate you know i would say anyone that works at holly and co literally radiates Holly & Co. We are all champions of small businesses. I could put any single, not that they would want to, but I could put any single person live on this, on us right now or on TV and they would absolutely speak in a Holly & Co way about our mission. <laughs> 
For the latest lessons, advice and insights, visit holly.co slash hub for my business advice hub, a free online resource thanks to Dell Technologies filled with content from myself and some of our small business community, sharing lessons from our journeys to help you navigate yours. And with a continued commitment to empower you, every week Dell are giving away one tech in a box. For a chance to win a brand new XPS laptop and a whole host of other goodies, head to holly.co slash get involved with thanks to Dell Technologies. Now let's get back to our conversation of inspiration. The birth of your daughter coincided with another life-changing event. Your best friend, Ben, being terribly injured in an accident, leaving him paralyzed from the chest down. So tell me about what happened next, because you and Ben decided to take on a pretty monumental challenge together. Yeah, so on my birthday, Ben Tano, my best friend, came to meet India for the first time. And uh, we have this photo. It's the last photo where he was seen standing. And uh, we're on our way home. And it was a really special day for me where my best friend got to meet my little girl. And um, it's those moments that you just value and remember for the rest of your life. And uh, I got a phone call basically to say that he had been in a motorbike accident. Our other friend that was with us had gone into the back of him. And uh, he was paralyzed and was later then told that he would never walk again. And that's where his and my journey really started. And I would say has really become the catalyst of what I do today, why I do it. And I think it's just that realization that tomorrow is not promised and that change can happen in a second. For me, I think coming off the back of being at a point of being seriously suicidal in my life and wanting to end things, I feel like I've got a second chance. And then having this second huge moment in my life with Tano you know, seeing how a guy has gone from the life that he had to the life that he has now, I need to make sure that I make the most of every single part of my body, mentally, physically, um, because I think that's where regret will come from later down in life is that if it is taken from me, my regret will be that I didn't make the most of it when I could. And so that's my inspiration behind, you know, a lot of these challenges in particular, you know, and my the activism, I would say, is, is because of him. And you decided to tackle the Berlin Marathon, am I right in saying that? That's it. So he was in hospital and within like a couple of weeks, you know, bear in mind, he's just been told he's not going to walk again. He's like, listen, I need to, I need to find a challenge or something to keep me stimulated. I need a focus, you know? So he was looking around and he's like, give me maybe just under a year, you know, and he found the Berlin Marathon, the London Marathon was too soon. And uh, all the nurses and doctors thought he was absolutely bonkers. Because I think he actually even called up um, someone connected to the GB team, Paralympic team, and said that he was going to become an, an Olympian. And I think this was after a week. <laughs> but that, that sort of energy and his, his personality, is, it, it, that's what he radiates. That's the person he is. And so we signed up and I, I thought he wanted me to run alongside him, but he actually wanted me to do it in a wheelchair. And um, I committed multiple months of my life to training within this wheelchair which was quite testing because I, I, you know, I was, a, I was a new daddy, you know, I was trying to find or forge a career away from this show that I'd been on for a number of years. And it, you know, I left me in quite a vulnerable way and there was just a lot going on quite frankly. And, um, we filmed this documentary called Berlin around it. And actually what's so special about the experience leading up to Berlin is that this was really about him and me supporting him. But I went through such a turbulent time in my life at that point where 
somehow it had shifted where my friend who's paralyzed in this chair has become my backbone and my support network. But I think it just shows how much it cemented our brotherhood and our love for one another. And it just turned out to be one of the most taxing things in my life that I didn't want to do because of what I was going through. But one of the things that I am the most grateful for, because without it, I don't know where I'd be, to be honest. That is unbelievable. And so you've readily admitted that this was one of the hardest things that you have. But there must have been a lot of insight and experience from taking on this challenge in a wheelchair. I spoke to Samantha Renk on this podcast and we talked about the purple pound being worth $249 billion to this economy. Yet it remains untapped because of the barriers. You know, the disabled communities are not likely to spend their money in a shop unless they can access it. And this is what you experienced. You know, an able-bodied person living life in a wheelchair or having this experience in a wheelchair really opened your eyes. Yeah. And I mean, this is what I was talking about in terms of why I want this journey to continue. I have made a promise to the, the spinal community, to my friends now, who I now see as family, that I will make a change for the spinal community in this world before my time comes to an end, whenever that may be. That is one of my promises because of the passion I have for every individual. Every individual on this earth deserves to have a life and a good one at that without restriction. We're a long way off from that, but we'll get there. But the only way that's ever going to happen is through inspiration or understanding. And that's what we're lacking right now. Or even empathy. I keep t- touching on it without empathy. Yeah. There's something happened recently. I've, I've got this new company. We throw events. And it's funny how things work out. A couple of my friends who I met through David Weir, who was my mentor at the time and has now become my friend, arguably one of the greatest, if not the most, the greatest Paralympian within a chair in terms of his accomplishments. He introduced me to a number of his GB athletes, much younger I've seen what they've been through and what they pine for and what they need. And although my events are for runners, we have now started to try and integrate as many wheelchair males, users, male and female as possible. So we start to bridge that gap between the communities. Mm. And there was this really special moment where I surprised this particular individual with two GB athletes, both of which are my friends, to come and support her on her goal of getting a PB 5K time. And I deliberately set up a race that all of our runners would be exposed to these GB athletes going at full blast in their race chairs around this track and every single one of theirs George dropped. And for the first time I saw that that excitement and now that investment into that community yeah. that they did not have before. They were blown away by the pace in which these guys go. You don't get that energy from a TV screen sometimes, but they did that day. Now, if that just impacts two people from the 60, 70 odd people that were there that day mm. to then go on and do something, we've made that impact. And that number is ever going to increase. So Again, it, it, it's funny how life works out through Tano's accident, how, you know, years later, it then develops into something like that. Wow. What I was astounded also to learn is that when you embarked on this and you went for your challenge at the Berlin Marathon, you actually lost followers when taking on the challenge. Yeah, about 10,000. Because I'm assuming they were there for the Maiden Chelsea, yeah. Josh. They were there for what it looks like on social media, rather than allowing you that space to grow 
and become or blossom into who you are now today? Yeah, I mean, there are certain individuals in this industry who have done exceptionally well at being themselves and being relatable. And I'm, I'm happy we have those individuals because they are so valuable to society. But unfortunately, a lot of these social platforms and these individuals who do become successful, I won't mention names, but they are the wrong people mm. because they themselves are incredibly lost. The problem is when you start to manufacture yourself into a product that's marketable to people, that's really risky because you're ultimately inspiring other individuals to behave or be in a certain way that maybe is not true to themselves too. And we're seeing that more and more and more. Mm. And actually for me to go on and do these challenges, if you're not going to be JP from Made in Chelsea and do what we expect you to do, then we're not invested in you. And that, that was hard to take at the time because it was kind of like, well, I thought you were invested in me as a person rather than maybe one particular part of my life. I'm still the same guy, but this is something that I'm passionate about and I really want to share with you. But actually, it's got to a point now where that's fine. Those individuals are on, again, you've got to understand a person's journey. They're not at that place yet, but in time they might be. You know, the age plays a massive part. Some get it really early on at 16. If you look at Greta, her passion for, you know, the environment, yeah. some take until they're 60. And so you just have to respect that. And the 10,000 I lost that day, they just weren't ready for that at that point. Some of them may have refollowed me. You have no idea because obviously the passion is still there. Yeah. You know, that's yeah. never going to change. You know, they're just at a point where it's just, you know, our, our journeys just aren't connected at that time and that's fine. And, it, it, you know, and they've missed out if they did because it was really just the start of something and it's extraordinary. And before we started recording, I was pulling your leg in terms of telling you about my journey with athletics that I'm at uh, 4K now running. And it sort of blew me away because then when I read that you were the first person in history to run a marathon in all four countries of the UK in 24 hours and that you were running to raise money for the Samaritans. And I was looking at this glorious photo of you when you passed the finish line. And it's just remarkable. What was that experience like? Oh, it was savage. It was so savage. I mean, I don't it know was so savage. So I watched the documentary yesterday, which has not been released yet. And just reliving it again, it just reminds me of what we went through. What's I think really powerful about this particular experience for me and the documentary that people will hopefully be able to see soon is, is actually the power of community again. I would not have finished that line had I not had that team around me. I owe every single bit of it to them with what we accomplished because my body had completely broken on me and it never done that before. You know, at one point we thought I'd torn the ligament in my knee, my calf, my foot all on one leg. So I literally, and that was in marathon two. So I was basically running on a completely damaged leg for three marathons and the pain was more excruciating, I think, than anything I'd ever really experienced with any other challenge I had done. And it was just because of the right team and their understanding of me and what needed to be done and said got me across that finish line. So I'm eternally grateful to the guys from Ultra X and my running coach, Ben Parker, for what they did that day. Even like, you know, the cameraman and the, you know, the videographer just being there and refusing to go to sleep. Every single one of these individuals stayed up with me the full 24 hours. And, and it just, it was really really special one of the toughest things i've done but that for me holly is to show people how far i'm willing to take it mm. to connect with the person to prevent them from making that decision that will impact 
every single person in their life. You know, I look at, you know, everybody and we talk about the diamond in children that we should find. And it's almost like the schooling potentially that we have today and certainly in your experience where they weren't looking for it. And more that we were told, you know, but when you grow up, what are you going to do rather than actually looking for the beauty in our children and realising that actually probably that human, they just are very young, love something and maybe that's what's going to be what they should be anchored to for the rest of their life and that we should actually go searching for those diamonds because it feels like for you, your diamond is sport, is your empathy, you know, and the fact that that was all muddled at the start of your life, but it feels like you've come full circle where this is also your life raft in your life and you've gone on now to build a business out of this as well called Run Buddy. Tell me what your dreams are for Run Buddy. And is this where you're going to play out some of your visions, some of your dreams? Yeah, um, 100%. It, it, like I said, it, it gives me an opportunity to grip, bridge the gap with so many different communities to try and inspire people. You know, what I go through, I, I need to make this very clear to people because I think people's perception is sometimes they can put you on this pedestal and think you're just this monster of an athlete. I've never been in a wheelchair before. You know, I've never run long distances before. I took up running less than two years ago. Obviously with the wheelchair challenges, I, I, I just took it up because of Tano. I had no prior experience. And actually when I did John O'Groats to Land's End, my body, you're literally, you're sat on your leg. So it put my lower spine into such a compromised position where it would go into a spasm. Now, my ability didn't necessarily get me to accomplish those challenges. It was the passion I had for what I was trying to achieve. And that's what I'm trying to find in every single person. And I want to create that platform for them to support them and enable them, as you pointed out, to find their diamond. Because I think in life, it doesn't have to make sense. And a lot of my challenges to 98% of the people probably don't make sense. It just has to have purpose. And that's what they have. And I think more often than not, I see people underestimating their ability of what they think is possible. And I know with the right platform or people around them, anything is possible. At the weekend, we threw our first event of the year. I had two girls come up to me who had never run further than 14K in their life. I know 14K sounds a lot, but I'm talking about I mean, the step gosh, up. I mean, were they showing off or no, something no, no. to you? Well, this... 14K, yeah. 10K more than me. But, but, but what I mean is that to, to them, 14K was the furthest they'd run. Now, there were three choices. There was a, uh, a 10K, a 15K and a 21K, which is a half marathon. Bear in mind, these girls had never run for, further than 14K. And they both came up to me and said, would we be able to do the half? And I said, 100%. These girls came, no water, no snacks, which is mad because they didn't have anything to top up over that period of time. And they both smashed their first half marathon. And I just My think, goodness. you know, what testament to them that they were able to accomplish that. And I want more people to do it. And we've now got two individuals. We've got Imo, who we're working with right now, who's going on through, you know, she's come from her battles with eating disorders to now attempting to become the youngest person to run John O'Groats to Land's End. She does it in June. It's so exciting. We've got Dan Sibbs, who tried to take his life before Christmas, who was unsuccessful, thank God, because the world would honestly be a worse place without him. He wasn't a runner last year, but he got into running after what had happened, and he is now running 84 kilometres a week for every week of 2022 to honour those that have fallen. 
And I just think we have this platform and this community growing and I hope you can sense it in my voice. I can, it's, I can. It's so exciting. It's because so I, exciting. I want more people to do it. Tell us for those who might not be on 14K, but 4K, for instance, is it all about joining the platform to meet other people to take part in your challenges? Like, how do we look at what you're building? Yeah, so, I mean, we're creating tailored plans, running plans just for now, but we are going to be going into multiple different uh, areas to try and help as many different communities as possible. So if right now we may tailor plans from a 5K all the way up to an ultra, say 250K, which sounds really daunting. Now, this could just be a one-time wonder for you where you sign up and you just want to get a fast 5K or you might want to run a marathon for charity, which is amazing. What I'm trying to say is, is that the community that we're building here, we don't have egos. I don't have time for that in this space. And actually, one of the beauties of running is that there aren't egos. There is such a mutual respect for anyone that is willing to sacrifice and put themselves through it. Because it's all relative, Holly. Mm. You put yourself down about doing a 4K. A 4K to you is somebody else's 250K. It doesn't change. The way that you feel when you run does not change. It's, it's just yeah. as hard. Yeah. What I'm saying to individuals is that why don't you start off with that 5K and see how you find it. And I want to take you to a point of that marathon or that 250K mm-hmm. and know that you have the right people around you that enable it. And what's really exciting about the community we have now is that no idea is too crazy. Now, when Imo, who is going to take on Joggle this year, wanted to do uh, seven marathons in seven days, most of the people around her told her not to do it, including her family. They didn't understand it. They were worried about her. But because it was individuals like myself and Ben and others that went, no, nah, it's badass. You've got, to go for, you've got to go do that. And we're going to be with you every step of the way. She did it. And what was really special was at the end of it, tears are running down her dad's cheeks and the pride, but also the understanding that they probably underestimated their little girl, what she was capable of. And they're never going to make mm. that mistake again. And I want more people in this world to see that. I want more children to inspire mm. their parents to maybe think or believe in a different way. Yeah. But more children to actually go, I can do it. And maybe not get caught up in the trends of social media of what their perception of cool is. Be different. You are special. Goodness. You've got a convert here. I mean, 4K today, 5K tomorrow, maybe even. Let's... <laughs> Don't hold your breath. Josh, it's been such a lovely, lovely time to spend with you. It really, really has. And one of the things that I'm pulling out of this is how we all have the different chapters in our lives and that we, of course, are who we are, but that we can absolutely blossom, develop, move forward, have these most incredible, as you said, adventures in different moments of time. And we can look back at them. And as long as we don't regret anything, we need to sort of seize the day. And it's just been wonderful. I've never really spoken to anybody at length about that sort of what maybe juxtapositions of of being a TV reality star to someone who is prepared, um, because I don't know anyone listening to this podcast prepared to sit in a wheelchair with their dear friend and tackle a marathon. And it's just a beautiful story. At the end of these interviews, though, Josh, I ask two questions and it's really looking at, and you're at the start, I know, of your business journey here. But 
it's like being on an epic roller coaster. And so, so far, what would you say has been your biggest low on this roller coaster? Well, God, I tell you what, there's a lot of those, that's for sure. Um, what's been my biggest low? <sighs> the biggest low is probably the repercussions of a breakup. That That's hard, for sure. Um, but it's, 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 it's a part of the process. But what I would say is, is no matter how hard the low is or how big it is, um, you, get, you get past it. And what would you say has been your greatest high? My little girl. My little girl, for sure. You know, I, I had a moment the other day where I got to see my little girl, she's four, go up and she got a golden book or a certificate for her you know, her behavior or her attention and her creativity. And I had a moment where I sat in my car and I had the certificate in my hand and I looked at it and I thought, God, if I'd have taken my life all those years ago, I wouldn't be sat here right now having witnessed what I just did. And I, I really want anyone that's listening to this to, to hear those words because I don't want you to go without those moments too because it is so precious and everyone in this world should be able to experience that moment too. Hmm. That's so beautiful. I know that you have prepared a letter to your younger self as well that um, I would love if you are able to to read to us. Yeah. As ever, I don't know what you're going to say, but um, it would be wonderful if I can hand over to you. So I'm going to be honest, I feel very, very vulnerable. I actually sent this to a friend last night saying how vulnerable I felt sharing this, but I think it is really important to, to do it. Thank you, Josh. Um, <laughs> so I put, I wrote this, I put, how you feel in this moment, you will still feel 10 years from now. The difference is you understand it and yourself a little more. All those moments that you should not have experienced will enable you to go on and do remarkable things. Life hasn't been fair at times to you, but without it, it would not have shaped the man you have become today. Be kind to yourself, be patient. Don't compare yourself to others. You are unique. I promise you that. Eventually you will see that for yourself. The curveballs you face today will not change. Some will become bigger than others, but by God, I can tell you now how well you face them. Life has taught me that we have the ability to adapt to any situation, good and bad. Don't rush your time. Enjoy the days and the years. I have seen so quickly how they can be a person's last. The only thing I've seen a person regret is not having more money, is, is not having more money or materialistic things. It's time, not making the most of it. Time with your loved ones, time focused on yourself, time to test yourself both mentally and physically, time to explore, time to be more present, time to make the most out of the one life that you have been given. Open up your heart, Josh, and let people in. I know it scares you, but it's such a wonderful thing when you find that one. Don't be afraid to speak out and ask for help. I know your struggles. The right people. Sorry, Holly, this is... Uh... It's... Just please don't apologise. I wish you could read the last bit for me. <sighs> the 
right people will help you. And trust me, there are many more than you'd think. Be empathetic to others. You may not see eye to eye. The journey has led them to different points. Be mindful of that. Don't hold on to hate and hurt like I know you do. It's a weight you do not need. Direct that attention to the things that you are grateful for and make you smile. Don't live your life as if tomorrow's promised. You have a lot to give to this world, so don't lose a day. I look back at you now and want you to know how proud of you I am. I see now what a complete plonker you are. That doesn't change, by the way. You have some incredible things coming your way. Next time you feel low, I want you to remember that you don't need knuck from this day on. You have all the tools you need. Thank you for sharing that. You know, I haven't been through your experience and I can only imagine, I can't imagine actually, the strength you need mentally to come through it all and to be able to read a letter like that. You know, and you're 32 and you've got hopefully decades and decades ahead of you. And if you can imagine what you've already accomplished here campaigning and what your dream is to help other people ultimately you just want to do good you want to help people can you imagine can you imagine the impact you're going to have when you look back at yourself and so it is such an honor to talk to you at this stage I can't wait to follow your journey Um, I'm going to sign up Um, don't know if I'll be doing 250k (laughs) but I will promise you I'll do 5k I'll do it on Saturday for you and thank you for being so brave and reading that letter. Oh, thank you. I didn't honestly that triggered something that I did. I did when I when I wrote that. I didn't think I'd uh, that would go the way it did. But I, I hope for anyone that's listening, they they really see that this isn't just like manufactured words. This yeah. is coming from a very very emotional, passionate place. Um, so yeah, thank you, thank you for allowing me to share that. Thank you, Josh. Before you go, don't forget to head to holly.co to be in with a chance of winning a brand new Dell Technologies XPS laptop and a whole host of other goodies. And if you've enjoyed this episode, if it's helped you along your journey or inspired you, would you mind rating and reviewing? Your support means the world to me. It really does spread the word and will help inspire even more people to build a life they love. And if you want to hear all our latest news, you can sign up to my weekly newsletter, Holly's Desk Notes, over at holly.co.